evil. Go to talk about evil and strange things happen. All right, I am drawing somewhat from a book, this book. Uh, I was intrigued for a couple of reasons. One, it was called The Devil, A Biography, and the other it was 498. <laughs> but, uh, and when I looked at the back, I thought, no, I'm not buying this book. The guy looks like a complete nut. But he actually uh, is a well-educated man, and it's a very, very interesting book. And he's, the one thing that I look for when I'm looking for sources is I, I like for not to look for unbiased, but uh, apparent bias. Am I making any sense? If they're just open with their bias, I'm okay with it. <laughs> so, uh, I'll pass it around. You all can take a look at it. I don't use that in every slide or anything. This is also influencing um, my thinking as well. Uh, this is uh, a book by Barbara Walker, and she is very much up front that she is uh, at, at odds with Christianity. But she's also done her work. She's done her work, and uh, am I making any sense? So she, her bias is obvious, <laughs> but I do value this book in that I was a history and religion major, and um, I read this whole thing, and, and somebody actually stole my other copy, so I hope it's doing them well, but uh, it's the only encyclopedia I've ever read from cover to cover. It was just that fascinating to me. Because I felt like that in both my instruction in religion and in my instruction in history, the women's side of the story was just kind of left out. They pointed to a couple of books about women and the Gospels and Jesus' treatment of women. And things like that were beginning to happen. But this book really takes the lid off a whole different edge to the story. And... Uh, it's got a lot, so I've drawn on this a lot all the way through, like when I've talked about goddesses and things like that, a lot of it comes from here. Like I said, she's obviously biased, and th there are some things that I'm sure would um, anger people in what she's saying, but I don't think that because someone I disagree with someone is a good reason to not listen to them. Does that make sense? <laughs> There's been too much of that historically. And I find that I agree and disagree with her. All right, so first of all, I thought, okay, different themes every week. Last week was, was total magic. I can't remember the first week. <laughs> it's just gone from my brain when I said that. But the whole idea I wanted to think about this time is free will. And actually, the more I've looked into this, the more I feel like, oh, I don't even know what that means anymore. But I thought I'd give a couple of examples because I would imagine... Um, almost everyone in here has raised a child or at least been a part of raising children. And we know the old, can I have a candy bar? And the child just wants the candy bar, they don't want anything else, right? It's not like they're going, can I have a candy bar or this thing that's really good for me. It's usually just, I just want the candy bar. Um, so when they want it, they, just, they don't want it for logical reasons or nutritional reasons. They just want a candy bar because it tastes good. All right, so... In terms of free will, is the child's free will tainted? Yes. We know that they're not making the right choice, are they? And children often don't. And 
as is interpreted by scholars like Augustine, that since it is self-centered, that is evidence of sin. So that's an interesting question. Is self-centeredness sinfulness? All right. From the perspective of the parent, can I have a candy bar? I used to use this trick all the time. My son would say, can I have a candy bar? I'd say, you can have an apple or an orange. But I want a candy bar, which you can have an apple or an orange. Yes? (laughs) And eventually he would say, okay, I'll take the orange or the apple or whatever, right? So in this case, does the child have free will? Because I've eliminated one of the options. True? It looks like free will. Yes? They have a choice, an apple or an orange, but I took something off the table. So is that still free will if something's off the table? That's an interesting question. And of course, it relates to the Garden of Eden. If you took one thing off the table, you could eat of any tree of the garden, but not this one. Is it still free will because you said you can't? Of course, it was an option. That's a different matter. And of course, they could steal the candy bar. All right. If we look at two points of view that emerged in the early church, there's one point of view that says people are basically evil. I don't want to say evil at this point, um, but basically bad. Basically, that left to our own devices, we will almost always choose the candy bar. (laughs) True. And if no one's looking, and if it's in your kitchen. Okay, so the theory would be we're basically bent toward evil. And even if we make a good decision, we say, no, 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 I'm going to have a, a bowl of Special K. <laughs> even if we do that, we did that for the, all the wrong reasons. Yes, for show or because, you know, we think other people want us. You know what I'm saying? We're not really doing it because we're good. We're doing it because society tells us what to do sort of thing. Now, if we're truly basically good... And this, is, this was hard as I was raising my own children because if I assume that they're basically evil, then I'm always making rules and watching, yes, looking for them to cause trouble. If I'm thinking they're basically good, I will trust them. Yes? <laughs> it's a tough call. <laughs> and they make deals. My daughter made a deal. She said, I will only tell you what is life threatening? <laughs> She's about 16. I'm not going to tell you everything. And I agreed to that deal. I didn't want to know. If they're at a party and people are smoking pot and doing drugs and she doesn't do that, do I need to know that it was there? Probably not. Yes? Is it life threatening? Is she in trouble? I need a call. So I kind of understood that. So the assumption on the other side is that people are basically good. And the reason we make bad choices is not because we're evil. It's because we have bad ideas about ourselves or about whatever I put up there. We're just ignorant. Yes? And there are many philosophies and even religions in the world based on the idea that we're basically good, but we're kind of in an environment that that doesn't allow us to see how good we are. Now, as a parent, I know there was a little bit of a mix. Yes, 
I know that left to their own devices, they probably won't make the best choices. On the other hand, I know that I only have so much time and then I have to rely on them to make the best choices. Yes? Once they're 15, 16, 17, I'm out of the picture, really. And so I have to just trust that they will. Are they basically good or basically evil? I don't know. Maybe people are somewhere in between. But the church faced this same question early on. And there was a writer named Pelagius. It's interesting because Pelagius uh, historically gets kind of trashed because he loses in this battle. But historically, recently, he's kind of been exonerated a bit and that his ideas were exaggerated by his enemies as to exactly what he was trying to say. Plus, if you really look at what he's trying to say, it's very confusing, given what I talked about in terms of my children. If you look at the word responsibility, what's the last word? Ability. <laughs> and of course, teachers everywhere have made much out of that, right? Responsibility means you have ability. His theory was this. You can't ask someone to do something they're incapable of doing. True? I teach this in linguistics. I can't say, could you get taller, please? I can't make that request because it's absurd. One can't will themselves to be taller. Yes? I could say, could you bring that to me because you're able to do that. So his assumption is that if God asks us to keep his commandments or if God asks us, asks us to choose to follow him, that we have the ability to do that. It seems logical. Why would I say, follow me to someone who cannot? Now, because of this, he categorically denied the doctrine of original sin, which was being propagated by Augustine at the same time. He said Adam's sin affected Adam alone. That was his problem. Now, if you think about it carefully, the whole idea that we inherited sin from Adam is not exactly what Paul says. Paul says we inherited death from Adam. And Paul says that because Adam sinned, we all sin, but he never really says it's inherited. He never says something happens physically. So, this is what he said. <coughs> and he believes that infants are basically good. And you can see where he would not have much use for the emerging idea that to this time that infants should be baptized. You'd be like, why should they be baptized? And you can see that, he, that his ideas are actually going to be friendlier to some ways to Protestantism later. Even though Protestants choose Augustine as well. So basically he says we're born good, we're born in the image of God, but we're born in a sinful world. It's already corrupted. And there's a real sense of that. I remember uh, I was watching television with my daughter when she was probably 10 or 11. And she asked me what rape was. That's one of those moments where I didn't want to be on the planet. <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to go, I'm so sorry we brought you into this world that I have to explain to you that. Yes, I'm going to give it my best shot here. <laughs> but to see her face. Yes, 
So there's a part of me that's with Pelagius there, that there was an innocence in her that could not conceive of this, and then all of a sudden when I talk to her about it, she has to go, wow. So Pelagius kind of was coming from that point of view. We're born innocent, just as innocent as Adam, but we're, we're living in Adam's world, the world of rebellion, and it's kind of taught and brought down to us. <coughs> now, because of this, he believes that grace facilitates, but it's not necessary for salvation. There's where the rub comes. But you see, logically it follows. Yes? If you believe I can choose to follow God, then I can of my own free will do that. Yes? The offer of grace helps, but it's not totally dependent on that. That's where the rub comes with Augustine. Because Augustine believes that grace is grace, right? And that we are unable to accept without grace. Now, he believes that the constituent nature of humanity is good, period. So he would say that, it, you know, a child brought up in a certain way can make good choices because they're basically good. This would also agree with many of the philosophers. Um, Aristotle said that everyone, everyone seeks good. He said, but they, some of them have really bad ideas about what good is. Like, some people are trying to be really good thieves. You see? <laughs> but his point was, everyone's trying to be good. And if we capitalize on that, then we can redirect. That's kind of what Pelagius is trying to say. And Pelagius is a sincere Christian. He's very much about living a moral life. And... Uh, He's not as evil as history may have said, but of course Augustine wins. I love this. I, I, I love his phrase because it sounds like a food on an Italian menu. Mankind is massa piccati. <laughs> Go order that at Carabas. A mess of sin. <laughs> and incapable of raising itself from spiritual death. Fallen man has a free will but has lost his moral liberty. Okay, so something is off the table. And what's off the table is the ability to actually make a good decision. This is according to Augustine. The state of original sins leaves in a wretched condition, us, us in, in a wretched condition, unable to refrain from sinning. We are able to choose, but our desires remain jo joined by our evil impulses. We'll see a little quote from him later. He says, our choices are always to sin or to sin. very hopeless kind of thing. <laughs> so, even, even if you make a good choice, he would say it was sinful, because your motives were all wrong. Right? Now, there's a part of us, I think, that naturally bristles at that. There's, that would be that all acts are sinful, so acts of great courage, acts of great sacrifice, saving children, they would all be sinful acts. In his view, yes, if the person is unredeemed. Yeah, it's a little hard to swallow. <laughs> if you run in to save someone, that seems to be a very selfless act, but he would say it's still sinful if you're not redeemed, if you're not a Christian. 
because of original sin, were tainted from the very beginning. And he saw it as a tainting that comes through the birth canal of the mother. It starts with conception in his view. That you're sinful from the very beginning. Based on, I think, a really lousy verse to base it on where David says, in sin did my mother conceive me? Well, he didn't say in sin did our mothers conceive all of us. He just said, this was more like a confession on his part that maybe the relationship of his parents was a little wonky. <laughs> or maybe he was being metaphorical and just saying, that, it, that like that song, Born Under a Bad Sign. You ever heard that song? Born Under a Bad Sign, if I didn't have good luck, I would have no luck at all. Maybe he's just having a moment like that, right? I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> okay. But his logic also, I think, resonates. And, and I don't want to solve this problem for anybody today because I feel like both of these arguments have merit. He says, grace means nothing if we are able to save ourselves, if we're able to make that choice. So he believes that the only reason anybody in this room is here is because God gave them the grace to make the choice. Yes? Does that make sense? And Martin Luther and others are going to go back to Augustine when they begin the Protestant movement. All right, so that sets up our thing. Now, like it says here, Augustine wins. <laughs> they have a council, and his side wins. And of course, as you all know, if you've been here every week, you know that a lot of these things were uh, political. I don't know how spiritual they were. They were a mixture of a lot of things, political people knowing each other, who knew who, that sort of thing. Pelagius basically loses. That doesn't mean Pelagius lost totally because his ideas continued to influence many Christians for many years. But I did want to talk about what the scriptural basis for Augustine's belief was. One was from Romans 5.12, and it's actually more of Romans 5, but I don't like to squish hundreds of words up there. But just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Then Augustine is saying that Paul is laying this out, that that's what happened. Now, the interesting thing is, without the letters of Paul, we probably wouldn't have any idea of original sin at all because there's no evidence of it in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't talk about it. So, without just this passage and a, little, and a couple from 1 Corinthians, there would be almost no reason to have this whole doctrine. And the other one, Psalm 51.5, which I've already let you know my bias on that. <laughs> I don't think that means what they think it means. But also, Irenaeus and Origen, I mentioned those two because we looked at them last week, agreed. Now, his doctrine said that from the point of Adam's sin, we are all born into a hereditary tainting by that sin, which is passed on through generations, but something we had no control over, that no will can overcome, yet becomes a part of us at the point of conception. Before the fall, Adam had the ability, the freedom of will, to choose to sin or not to sin. What's left are after Adam's decision for all, until redemption is only the freedom to sin. So you're free, but you're free to sin, in his view. Once redeemed, we choose to sin and to not sin. All right, so 
unless redeemed, we do that. Now, unfortunately, the consequence of this, coming up with this idea of original sin, didn't leave things alone. Sometimes I think we have to be careful what idea we come up with over here because it's related to other ideas. Are you with me so far? <laughs> as soon as we say that there is something like original sin, then that means that women somehow are to blame. Are you with me? Logically, it kind of goes. Because you go back and you look at the first story, like, okay, well, who came up with this idea of saying in the first place? Okay. Now, one thing that I think sometimes Christians never think of is that the Jews had the story before the Christians. What did it mean to the Jews? To the Jews, it was just a story, and it was an explanatory story. It was a fable of sorts, not that I'm saying that it didn't exist, but what I'm saying is it's a fable because animals talk and that kind of thing, right? That snake talks. And so fables usually include animals that talk. But it's an explanatory story to explain a couple of things. Why is the world so crappy? Why, is it, why do we have to work so hard? Yes? Why do women have pain in childbirth? Why do women depend on men? Why do women hate snakes? <laughs> it's, it's a story to explain those things, right? Whether or not it's a good story, we'll let history decide. But there was no fall in the sense that there, because in the Jewish view, there's no fall because there's no need for the Redeemer. You see what I'm saying? Christians, it has to be a fall. For the Jews, it, it's just a story about how we're not in paradise anymore. That God created this perfect place for us and we blew it. Yes, so it just sort of sets up a theme. If we do what God, so the free will is still very active in that view. Yes, we could still choose to live in paradise again or not. So we made a bad choice, but that doesn't mean that everybody's stuck into Adam's choice, other than the fact that nobody can go back to Eden. So it was originally an explanatory story. Why is life so hard? Why do women hate snakes? And it idealizes the golden age before people felt shame. Again, it was kind of like when my father, I meant my father, my, as a father, my daughter talked to me about what rape is. Well, it's, it's like parents trying to explain, what, why are we ashamed? Why do we feel ashamed when we're naked? Yes? So again, it explains that. The emerging church interpreted Eve's actions as creating sin and death and bringing about the crucifixion of Jesus. So there was a bit of a choice here, I think, as to how to interpret this story for the church, and they went, because of original sin, they went down this road. Now we're seeing how harmful this road is. What's it going to mean for women? Another thing that happens because of this reinterpretation of the story is a very minor figure in the Old Testament, Satan or the devil, suddenly becomes a major figure in Christianity. And what began as a story about a serpent, a fable about the wise serpent, it only says there's a serpent in the garden. It doesn't say it's the devil or Satan. And that it's the wisest of all animals. So it's really a story about serpents and how wise they are. Most of the cultures of the world believe serpents are wise. They believe they're also uh, symbols of resurrection because they shed their skin. They seem to live forever. <coughs> so they had all kinds of symbolic value at the time. So what began as a fable featuring a wise serpent became a key story 
placing a figure as responsible for all its evil in the world. Yes? So, of the humans, who gets blamed? Women. And of the forces, and then all of a sudden we have this outside figure that has taken on this power, this ability to be the symbol of evil in the world, the devil. Yes? But this is a relatively new way of looking at it. Let's step back. This is fascinating. <laughs> I never even noticed this until I was doing this research. The word, the Hebrew word for Eve is hua, hua. It means life or woman. But it is two-thirds of Yahweh, Yahuwah. So even in God's name, God's sacred name, is the center life and woman. Are you with me? That's kind of interesting. And Yahuwah actually means, it's an invocation of the name Hua, her name. So we see an earlier tradition. In the previous stories, before the story of Eve that we're circulating, there was an, another Eve, there was an Eve in their stories. And she was the creatress of man and the world which logically follows that women would create men. So you can see her over there. She has a snake for a consort, and that she's welcoming man to the tree of knowledge. Isn't that interesting? This is reinterpreted in the biblical story as being he creates her and, and all the things that we know about the Adam and Eve story. She's also often depicted with her consort, the serpent, but when we get to Paul in 1 Timothy, he's already started reinterpreting the story. Adam was not deceived, the woman was deceived in the transgression. All right, so I've already asked you the question. When we're talking about blame, the story has been reaffixed. Yes? So originally the story, yes, the woman falls, but the man is equally to blame, isn't he? God doesn't say you're not as equal to blame. He, he curses all three of them, right? kind of like a parent who catches three children doing something bad, it doesn't make any difference who was the one that came up with it. Everybody's punished, right? And since Adam is such a weakling and blames her, yes, God is pretty harsh on Adam when you go back and read the story because he goes, oh, she made me do it. You ever seen that? <laughs> she made me do it. And God interprets that exactly like a parent would, Yes. Does that make you less responsible? Yes, we tried that as children, didn't we? It was his idea. I'm like, but you went along. So you're equally guilty, it doesn't matter whose idea it was. So originally the story wasn't about blame, it was about three people getting punished, three beings being punished for being stupid. Yes? But they're both, both off someplace else, not in God's presence. Right. I know, that's one that mystifies me, actually. We, it's evidence that we have a very early story, is that God is off doing something else. <laughs> he doesn't know what they're doing. And that's an interesting portrait. There's evidence here that he's the sun god, because he comes there at the end of the day. So he's been busy being the sun god, and he comes in the, where are you? I don't know, well... It depends on, uh, yeah, 
depends on whether you think God is all-knowing and just sort of ignored it. But I got to admit, you know, as a parent, I wouldn't do that. If I know my kids are up to trouble, I wouldn't be like, oh, let's just stand over here and watch them get in trouble and then curse them forever. <laughs> That's a little problematic. Okay. So let's talk about consequence one, <laughs> blaming Eve. Now, from today's perspective, the church, I think, has, has done a lot to change. But when I uh, visited a church in Louisville, Kentucky, that had about 10,000 members, one of those super churches, about 10,000 members, they were choosing deacons one time. And uh, actually, it was the last time I ever went to this church. I was there, and they had chosen deacons. And he said that they chose only men because in Timothy it says that a deacon should be the husband of one wife. I stood up and walked out. I thought, this man's an idiot. I had a lot of respect for him before. But I thought, that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that you're monogamous, that you are married to one person, not the point that it's a man married. You know what I'm saying? He was saying deacons couldn't be women based on, I think, a very spurious interpretation. So it kind of angered me that he said that. So today there's the issue is still there. But let's look at what Tertullian said. Now, Tertullian is another one of the church fathers. He's in our book, a collection. This is what he said to women in general. And do you not know that you are an Eve? The sentence of God on this sex of yours lives in this age. The guilt must necessarily live too. You are the devil's gateway. The first deserter of the divine law, you are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. Oh, that sort of exonerates Adam, doesn't it? Oh, well, the devil just knew that they couldn't fool Adam. You destroyed God's image. Man, wow. On the account of your desert, that is death, even the Son of God had to die. Yeah. Now, you're thinking, this is just one God. No, this was the spirit of the times. This is what happened to women. This is why women, when they had any role in the church, was a limited role. This is why they had to be celibate, nunneries, etc. Um, because they're the devil's gateway. <laughs> Rightfully, you roll your eyes. <laughs> but you see how the two, just because of that one switch to original sin, then both of these figures that were minor figures became major figures. The women's status goes seriously down. And the devil's status goes seriously up. He seems to have more power than he had before. Yes, he can tempt humanity. And who is tempted? Tertullian, I'd be, shoot, I'd have to look it up to make sure. But very early on, third century, something like that. This continues. 418, church council ruled it heresy to say that death was natural. You had to say that death was the result of Eve's disobedience. So this is, as we say now, in the controversy between creationism and, and uh, evolution in schools, this would have been, you know, they would, everyone would have taught this. The death is not natural, it's all Eve's fault. This is also, you know, part of the reason why uh, early theologians asked even if women had souls. Yes, they were asking that question, which was debated up to about 900 A.D. <laughs> Fortunately, they decided they did. But up to that time, 
And you could see early parts of this when Paul says that women are saved through childbearing and obedience to their husbands. So there's already this idea that, that to redeem from Eve's sin, the only way to be out of it is to, to be obedient to your husband and to have Christian children. All right, so how did it happen? I'm going to go through a few things. One is good and evil were redefined. It's interesting. One of the reasons I didn't want to talk about this is because I don't like to talk about evil. I'm a positive person. I like to talk about good things. <laughs> but I could talk about good and evil if we understood what they originally meant. In great comfort, actually. Also, a redefinition in between the Old and New Testament that God is only good. Hang on to that. It's also a reinterpretation of Old Testament stories in light of Persian and Greek ideas. And then a gradual conquest of the domains and rights of women through male-oriented and male-privileging reinterpretations. All right, so in Old Testament times, this is interesting. The Hebrew word translated as good tob and evil, ra, means beneficial and hurtful. If you understand that, it made me understand something about the Old Testament I've never really understood. Yes, from this point of view, God can do both. Are you with me? Just like as a parent, I can do things that are beneficial and hurtful. True? It doesn't make me necessarily a bad parent. I'm sure my children at times were going like, he's doing hurtful things. Making me stay home, missing the party. <laughs> yes, punishing so if we look at it that way, they didn't understand evil as uh, an independent concept. Does that make sense? Things were good or evil depending on whether they were beneficial or destructive. I like that definition right now. It can help you make decisions, can't it? Is this beneficial? Destructive. I'm going to choose the apple because it's beneficial. <laughs> and the candy bar is destructive. All right. So God did hurtful things when angered and beneficial when pleased. This is in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was responsible for everything that happened to human beings. Everything. So if there's a tornado, a storm, we still say these are what? Acts of, God. acts of God. We don't say acts of Satan. We still believe in kind of a form of this. Uh, some verses, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace, I create evil. If you understand what evil means there, then that isn't such a challenging verse. I, I've, you know, on the internet, th there were just site after site after site. God creates evil? And they're just flabbergasted. I was like, if you understand that evil means destruction here, then that's not such a strange thing for him to say. Other times that it appears, the Lord made all things for himself, yet even the wicked for the day of evil, and it, a lot of times it's translated as destruction. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, a man has come to be one of us, and he knows good and... So right from the very beginning in Genesis, it admits that God knows good and evil, if, but if evil is this abstract concept without any good at all, then that makes no sense. But it makes sense if you think God knows both destruction and beneficence, knows both ways of being. If you look at other places that it appears in the Old Testament, Genesis, God saw that all things he had made were very good, beneficial. But you cannot eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So God knows both, right? 
The reason you can't eat of the tree is because you will be like God. You will know. So basically he's saying, I don't want you to know destruction. I only want you to know benefit. The man now became like one of us, knowing good and evil. He shall not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from life and eat tree forever. And then later on, one of the reasons for the flood is the inclination thoughts of his heart was only on evil all the time. So destruction, basically. In the Old Testament, it says, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, rebuke, and everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and comes to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done forsaking him. So when we do destructive things, the Lord does destructive things back in the Old Testament. So in this sense, God is capable of and does actively do acts of what we would call evil. Yes, but only if you look at it in terms of destruction. The New Testament actually takes a a similar view, but an interesting view. Um, If you look across the New Testament, I'm again looking at this question, are we basically good, are we basically evil? So in the Old Testament, I think the key question was God, is God capable of good and evil? And obviously humans are capable of both good and evil in the Old Testament because God asked them to. And again, responsibility implies you have ability, yes? So in the New Testament, an evil person is evil within and a good person is good within. And that implies a true free will. The Greek for good is kalos. The Greek for evil is kakos. So you can see they're actually very, very similar words. Almost like, uh, and kalos actually means, if I remember my Greek correctly, I remember it means beautiful and friendly and positive. And kakos, we get things like kaka, it's negative, it's garbage. And, and some societies call uh, There you go, that's what I'm saying. So right away, and I've also studied like uh, the sounds and how we use sounds, uh, like m is used mostly for feminine and woman sounds, mother, ma, matrix. So certain sounds get associated, and ka sounds are harsh. We use them for cut. Okay, that's the only word I could think of, but <laughs> get the idea. Scat, scatter, the, very, the ka sounds a very strong cutting sound. So kalos is very peaceful, yes, flowing, beautiful, kakos, not so nice. So in Mark, <coughs> Jesus says, for from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts. And he says in another place in Matthew, the good man brings good things out of his good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil things stored up in him. So there doesn't seem to be this idea that we're inherently good or evil. Seems to be the idea that whatever you store up, that's what you are. Yes, if you keep doing destructive things, then that's what's going to come out of you. So there seems to be implied in Jesus' words here that there's actual free will that people are capable of both good and bad. All right, let's look at the second consequence of blaming the devil. Of course, devil and divinity are the same root. Indo-European Devi, Goddess, Deva, God. That's interesting. We've got it backwards, don't we now? Women are called divas. They should be Devis. 
So they're calling themselves men. That's interesting. Then Deva is closer in the Persian. Our old English devil comes back from Divas and Divi, the gods and the gods, goddesses of the Romans. So divine and devilish are relative terms. The ancient world, this is confusing for my students too when they read things like about the genies and uh, Arabian Nights and things like that. that and uh, if you read about demons in uh, Indian literature, or even demons in the Greek idea. A demon was uh, a, just a spirit, but it, didn't, it wasn't evil, it wasn't good. Yes, Christians made demon into a negative word only, but it was neither to them. So you weighed out the actions of a spirit by whether it was, guess what? Beneficial or destructive. And all spirits were capable of both. They tended towards one or the other, but they were all capable of both. So the whole idea of any of the spirits was similar to the, the Old Testament idea that God could do both, right? God can destroy, and God can build up God's choice. You see that at the end of Job, don't you? When Job is saying, what's going on here? And God just says, I, I can do anything I want, right? And even though the whole book began with a discussion between Satan and God, Satan doesn't have the power to do anything but question, Yes? the end of the book says, I can do what I want. He doesn't say, and Satan's, no, no corollary, no little subparagraph. Nobody else has any power. Yes? I'll kill you if I want to. My choice. I made you. So the Old Testament God is very much like that. And I've heard parents say that in <laughs> fits of rage. <laughs> I brought you into this world. <laughs> I can take you out. <laughs> so again, it's very much now, where do we get this other idea? I think it's largely due to the fact that for a time period, Jewish people lived in Persia, and also the Persian ideas very much influenced the whole Middle East. And there was a Persian idea um, that there were um, two gods. There was Ahriman and Ahura Mazda. And Ahriman and Uhura Mazda, um, one of them gets cast down to the world because he's, he doesn't do the right kind of sacrifices. It kind of resembles Cain and Abel's story. Uhura Mazda is cast down to the world, and he becomes the lord of this world. He's also the, the true creator of this world. He's not the, the creator of the world because in their view, it's the spirit world and the material world can't mix, right? So there has to be kind of a spirit God and a material God, and the material God makes the earth. But he's sort of equivalent to the devil in that he re he's rebellious and he doesn't do the right kind of sacrifices. Um, but their belief was, and the Magi prayed to him, <laughs> interestingly enough, through the assistance in all worldly matters. Yes, a similar thing happens in medieval Europe where if you want something worldly, you ask the devil, and if you want something spiritual, you ask God. And people at that time, didn't have too much trouble with that idea. Okay. i got a lot more slides. I don't know how far we'll get here. You also remember, I'm going to quickly go through these, though. Hopefully you remember these stories. If, uh, if you look for Satan in the Old Testament, you see uh, him in the story of Balaam, but in one version of the story, it's an angel, another it's Satan, but it just means an obstructor. 
someone who gets in the way. So yes, someone in the way when you're driving today, you could go, you Satan, and that's how they would have used the word. And in fact, Jesus, when he says it to Peter, that's how he's using the word, right? Get behind me, Satan. He doesn't mean he's Satan. He means he is an obstructor. All right, so we, see, we have that there. And in Zechariah and in Job, you remember Job. He's the challenger, the tester, the accuser. He's in the court of God. And then uh, in Zechariah, there's a story of Joshua, the high priest, and Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. This is actually the text that becomes central to Jesus' temptation. Joshua is the same name as Jesus, and so it taps into this idea that Satan is standing. So even in the temptation of Christ, Satan is still performing that role. Yes, he's the accuser. And it seems to be in the Old Testament that this is his job. It is his part in the heavenly court. But there's another fall. The, the quote, fall of Satan is largely in a book called Enoch. And Enoch is the only non-testamental, non-canonical book that's quoted in the New Testament. Did that make any sense? So Enoch is given some veracity by the fact that Jude quotes him. In the story in Enoch, there are watcher angels that are called the eyes of God in, in the book of Daniel. And they rebel. There's the names of the, there's seven of them, Belial, Azael, Mastima, Satananiel, Samael, Samyaz, and Satan. But the name appears both as a person and as just a general word, a Satan. Uh, they descend like stars on the earth of their own free will. They're not cast down. They just don't like it in heaven anymore. They come down and they have sex with women. And supposedly the story of the Nephi'im, when it says there were giants in the land in Genesis, you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of connecting a few dots. It gets connected with the story of Lucifer, which in, in context referred to a, a king at the time, and then it became allied with the, the name Satan. So they have sex with women, and they teach unrighteousness on the earth. So there goes the blame again. And then a group of angels, Uriel, Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael, it's said that those are also some of the names of, what, the Teenage Ninja Turtles? Throw them into the pit. <laughs> okay, so the stories of Jesus and Satan in the New Testament, some of them draw from the Old Testament, like Zechariah 3, but again, the devil's role seems to be similar to what it was in the Old Testament at this point. But there's an also an influence of Enoch. So the devil departed from him until an opportune time. Some people think that's the crucifixion. Some people think it's the next scene where they try to throw him off a cliff. His followers actually try to throw him off a cliff. All right, so also there's elements of Satan in the New Testament. There's exorcisms that figure greatly in the synoptics. They, Interestingly enough, they're not in John at all. And the Gospels depict sort of a battle between Jesus and the adversary, but it's clear who's in control. So it does draw on this idea of Enoch, of this battle between the fallen angels and Satan. But at the same time, the New Testament makes it clear that it's not an equal battle, like it would be in the Persian belief. Says, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
All right. In the New Testament, Satan retains his adversarial interpretation. He's the adversary. Get behind me, Satan. So again, in a way, I think it's wrong to capitalize that. I think he means get behind me, little s. You're blocking me. You're a stumbling block. All right. Paul, interestingly enough, the guy who... uh, kind of instigates this idea of original sin, actually um, doesn't mention Satan. He doesn't talk about Satan, and he doesn't talk about original sin, which is interesting, directly. He does talk about Satan blocking his way, but he blames Adam, not Satan, for the fall. So in one passage, he blames man, Adam in general, man is a generic term, in another, he directly blames Eve. I'm sorry I'm moving so fast but I will send these out to you. In John, you can see in red, what does he call Satan? Ruler of this world. So John reflects more of the Enoch um, version or the Persian-influenced idea that Satan is the ruler of this world. But the good news is that on the blue remarks that Jesus says, he says, the ruler of this world will be driven out. The ru- he has no power over me. He has been condemned. So there's no sense that there's an equal partner like in the Persian idea. This may be an adversary, but it's a weak adversary. So back to Augustine. I want to look at a couple of passages. Augustine's version of dualism was that humanity belongs to the devil. Predictably, he would see that if we're sinful, then we've just been given over. And we are manipulated by the devil and demons. Quote from him, the human race is the devil's fruit tree, his own property from which he may pick his fruit. It is a plaything of demons. The church went along with this idea. As you know, in medieval Europe, this was huge. And even in Martin Luther, he got in arguments with the devil, throwing stuff at him and stuff. So this was very real to them. (coughs) So the whole idea that Jesus said that he's the Lord of this world, I think everybody forgot part B, which he said, I'm defeating him. It's over. The battle's already over. But this idea continues that he still has this kind of almost equal power with Christ. And in one sense, more power because he's in control of all of us. Which, as one of the writers pointed out, then these whole ideas of selling your soul to the devil, pointless. (laughs) He already owns it. In this view, uh, you're already his. What's interesting is Augustine was a former Manichae, and the Manichaeism taught that there was a struggle between the good and evil. They were very, very similar ideas to the Persian idea. This kind of dualism is still widespread, and look at this. I found this on the Internet. All I put was God and the devil. I got this picture. But look at that, and I'm like, so this is one of the most popular pictures on the Internet. And the devil seems to be equal with Jesus, right? They're, they're arm wrestling. I'm like, they're arm wrestling? What the heck? So this, these ideas that Augustine and others planted, these are still contemporary ideas in a lot of churches. All right. Augustine ends up saying this lovely sentence about women. Man emerges mixed with excrement and water, fouled with impurities of woman. A wise man will avoid contaminating society of women as he would the touch of bodies infested with vermin. 
That's up there with when I tried to explain rape. Like, how could I explain that one of the great leaders of the church said that too? Augustine's a former Manichaean. Manichaeans said that the physical conception of birth filled them with horror. <laughs> so they rejected the whole idea that Jesus could have been born of a woman virgin. Birth was even off the table for the Manichaeans. But it continued. This is the 19th century. To all women, if you perceive a sudden sweet taste in your mouths or feel any warmth in your breast like fire or any occasion of pleasure in any part of your body, any occasion of pleasure whatsoever, if you become aware that it means your hearts are drawn away from the contemplation of Jesus Christ, then this sensation is very much suspected of coming from the enemy. So the two get allied, and then there's a picture even from the 20s, the devil seducing this woman. All right. I want to make one last little point about the devil, and I, I don't like to talk about the devil. People talk about speak of the devil. I'm like, I don't really want to. As you can see here, I think it gives him too much street cred. Yes? I get back to, like, where's Satan in uh, Dante's version? He's frozen in the bottom of hell. He doesn't have any power. All right, but unfortunately, historically, the Christian devil became a composite of all the ancient deities that Christians didn't like. So it's kind of like, okay, we'll just take on all the things. So the horns and the hooves came from Pan and Dionysus, the trident from Neptune, Hades, Shiva, reptilian forms of Leviathan, Python, Oribus, fiery form from Agni, female breasts of Astarte. Have you ever seen the pictures of the devil has like these hairy female breasts? Weird. <laughs> Wolf face from Fenrir. So over time, he just becomes the depository of everything. All right, so I want to make some conclusions here very quickly. <coughs> the dominant, it, this is actually a quotation uh, from a guy named Peter Stanford the book, The Devil of Biography. The dominant Old Testament picture of Yahweh's omnipotent God as the source of everything good and bad is still present in the New Testament, but with the concentration of the character of the devil comes a new approach to the eternal question of the origins of evil, with Satan positioned as the counter-principle to Christ. So that's when we get this kind of arm-wrestling image. Mixed in are some notions of the apocryphal literature, especially that of the rebel angels. I hope I've made clear that I don't think we necessarily have to interpret any of this the way that Augustine did. Yes? There's lots of room. So, as long as good and evil were simply helpful or destructive, there was no question of evil. So many books would not be written. The original concept of God as bringer of both good and evil promoted a broad concept of human responsibility and the ability to choose good. Once God is identified as only good, the reason for human evil becomes attributed to the devil and Eve just had to blame somebody which is the point of the original story everybody just starts blaming everybody she blames the snake and the snake is probably looking for somebody to blame but it doesn't have anybody left and women are seen as gates of the devil and in this scenario men are let weirdly off the hook yes so why did he do it a woman tempted him or the devil tempted him but is he responsible another question all right, so I looked at it in terms of two linguistic concepts. Preservation is when a word loses credibility, and amelioration is when it gains credibility. So the weird thing that happened with this whole idea of original sin is that preservation of women. So it was a direct result of tying Eve's actions to Augustine's concept of original sin. Amelioration is tied to exactly the same thing, that 
once Satan is seen as is enacting inside of the servant, then it's linked to the story of the fall, and women and de the devil get linked together. Augustine denies all possibility of free will, as most of us would define it. Without grace, our good is evil. These doctrines logically follow Augustine's concept of original sin. I think the modern church should actively address alternate interpretations because I think even though I, uh, different churches and Presbyterian churches are not united behind the idea of original sin, I don't think, but it's so influential, like the picture showed, the arm wrestling, it's so influential in Christian thought that I think we do well to think about it. So my last one is this. Philosophers tell us that perception is reality. And all philosophers will tell you that doesn't mean there is no reality. That just means we never see it by itself. We perceive it through specific frameworks. And I believe that Augustine saw what he saw because of the time he lived in and who he was. So, although there's realities behind the concepts, we privilege some views over others, often because of our culture, our prejudices, and our backgrounds. So, if good and evil still mean beneficial and destructive, then which verses we focus on, which concepts we give power, and how much power we give them should be carefully considered. That's what I think. There you go. Yes. Yes. But then how about all the parts that we they talk about they're gonna bind him for a thousand years, bind Satan in hell for a thousand years while Christ rules, and then they're gonna he's gonna throw him in a lake of fire when it's all over. Right. What do you mean he's already got it done? He's, he's still <laughs> I'm just saying what John said. <laughs> if John wrote Revelation, then there's a huge change. Yes, because that's from Revelation. This whole idea of that he's set loose on the earth again. Yes? Even then, though, I, I don't know. Th then they developed this whole idea that if Jesus was born, then there has to be an antichrist who was born. And I don't know. John is strange. And I can see why it didn't make... The, originally, they fought over whether it was going to be in the New Testament. Okay, so you can see my bias here. I'm looking at John. I'm going, I'd rather look at him as defeated than like Luther thinking he's up in the rafters you know, trying to kill me. Am I making any sense? To me, perception is reality. If I think the devil is, is, is equal with Christ and this is a battle, I'm going to perceive the world a certain way, right? But if I think the devil's already been defeated and there's no problem, that's a completely different way to look at reality. Now you count for your constant sinning. You're saying I constantly sin? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> That's a no. That's a no. That's another. That's another can of worms. The church had real problems with that. Can you sin after you're saved? So people put off baptism till their death. So they make sure they go, I'm not going to do anything else. And then other people said, but you know, Augustine and others went along with it that, that baptism should be done as a child because you're, it's covering you. It's kind of protect. It's like an insurance policy. It's covering you. So you're putting grace over future sins. But in any case, I'm not going to be blaming the devil. I'm going to take responsibility for the stupid things I do. That's because I perceive the world. I'm choosing which verses I'm going through, and I think everybody does. So can we summarize about the original sin, that it was 
Augustine's idea and Paul's elaboration? I don't no, no, no. Paul would lived way before Augustine. I, I think right. Paul laid some groundwork that could be interpreted that way, but I don't I don't think Paul believed in original sin. I don't think there's evidence that he did. I think Augustine made it up later to put some dots together, and the church followed it. But look at what it led to. I think it led to a whole bunch of nonsense. And so I don't think you have to have it. If Paul didn't have it, then you don't have to have it to have Christianity. Am I making any sense? You just say, no, the world is just fallen. It's just a mess. But it doesn't mean that your, your mother gave it to you. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, next week, because <laughs> I want to talk specifically about women and that Mary really, f- probably through the 6th to the 13th century, was the third person of the Trinity. And in many places, really just God. It, and if you look at all the cathedrals built in that time period, she, they're all named after her. So Christianity at that time really was... Mariology. She was really a goddess again. Unfortunately, it never seems to work that way, does it? The Greeks had these great positive views of women like Diana and Athena and Minerva, right? And yet they still abused women. And India today has very positive goddesses. And yet culture always seems to get in the way. But it doesn't hurt. My, my, so status of woman was more elevated in Greece than it was like in completely male-dominated societies that followed. Am I making any sense? They had a lot more power and opportunity than in other cultures. So it helps. I like to think if Augustine would have just not gone down a few of these roads, whether the treatment of women in Christianity would have been different. But it was such a patriarchal society, somebody would have said it. They were just so anti-women that in ways just are horrifying. Yeah. Oh, that was just a sub-point, but yes. Uh, the church said that they didn't accept any females as deacons because Paul said that, that a deacon had to be the husband of one wife. Now, to me, the point was that they were not polygamous. It wasn't the point that they were male. So I thought they were using a, a horrible misinterpretation to keep women from leadership. And it amazed me particularly because this was, a, a, and I think part of the reason I walked out is because this was a church filled with highly educated women. You know, there were doctors and teachers. and You know what I'm saying? This was not a backwoods church that taught women should be pregnant you know, and, and barefoot. This was a really what looked to be a progressive church, you know, a church of the, the 20th century, 20, you know, 10,000 members and educated populace. And, and I kind of wanted to say, women, are you hearing this? <laughs> <laughs> Next week, come back. It's gender and slavery. <laughs> yeah. Some more fun stuff. Thank you. Dr. And Clark. how they're related.